Well, welcome. We are glad that you are joining us here at Life Bible Fellowship Church, wherever you're at. We're glad that you are here. We are back in our series called King of the Kings after doing a series for the last three weeks called Finally Free. And as Lauren has just put into a synopsis where we are in the story, as Saul has been rejected as king by God. And the reasons for that is because of where Saul is in his heart. You could see politically, as the last time we went through this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15, that things are good from the outside. I mean, Saul has just defeated the Amalekites and is having a party. There's nothing if you were to look at it being just human, looking at it from a kingdom, from a political standpoint, from the idea of a country or a nation, that anything is wrong. Things are going great. He's throwing a party. But, and we know this is part of the story, you know, God was trying to tell his people, look, the reason that there are these battles is not because we're trying to explore militarily or we're trying to overtake other nations. It's a defense of, and in the long term, right, the plan for God to redeem the whole world through this nation. But that gets a little heady, I know, for maybe Saul. He wasn't thinking that far down the line. So when God said, hey, look, don't bring any plunder back. Don't take anything, any kind of gain from this. Of course, what Saul does is he does bring some back. And he says, obviously, look, his defense is this, this wasn't, it wasn't, it was the men. The men wanted some plunder and I gave in to them. And that's what he says, whether or not that's true. Um, that was his defense. Also says, right, well, it was, it was for sacrifice. Like we were, we were doing it for God. My kids sometimes, this is like not a new defense. It's an old defense and people still use it today. My kids use this defense. I don't know if you guys have ever run into this, but if I come into the kitchen and like one of them has their can in the hand in the cookie jar before dinner and I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, the, 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 the wheels start turning in their head and they turn and they go, I was getting a cookie for you, father. <laughs> and I'm always like, yeah, sure you were. That's what you were doing. I'm not sure if Saul in this moment is just like, but God, it was for you. And God is not impressed. Um, he says, I regret that I made Saul king. And this is something that Dan talked about a couple of weeks ago is, can, can God have regret? Can God, um, well, first of all, the first question is, did God make a mistake in making Saul king? And the answer is obviously not. Um, God did this for a purpose, and God stated his purpose. He said that Saul would help the Israelites defeat the Philistines. But God knew something maybe that, that we don't, God being not changing, God always being the same. He knew that people change. And Saul, like Lauren was telling us, started off great. When Samuel first came to him and said, God has chosen you as king, his attitude was one of like humility and like me, like my tribe is the smallest and I am unimportant. But things change over time for us as humans. Sometimes our heart changes. A lot of times we say that like, and we're talking about the good way, right? Oh, they had a change of heart, which means that they were probably like in a bad place. And we say they had a change of heart, which means they've softened. They've come around. But humans are fickle. We can have a change of heart the other way. It's not a good change of heart. And here it seems like that's what's happened to Saul. 
And for all of us, there's that danger. For most of us, it doesn't line up with what's happening around us. If things are going bad, if we're having trouble, if we're having struggles, if there's failure, we're much more likely to come to God and be like, God, I need you. I'm not enough on my own. And we, we find our place in a place that God acknowledges and rescues us from. A broken and a contrite heart, he does not deny. But a lot of times when things are going good and Saul is king and he's going to battle and he's winning battles. And have you ever been in this place where things are going good and then you start to think to yourself, how much of this is God? And how much of this is just me being a pretty awesome person? I mean, obviously there's a reason why God chose me to be king, right? It's my intelligence. It's my strength. I think that this is probably a job that nobody else can do. I'm doing it the best. And so when things appear to be going good, sometimes within ourselves, there can be a change of heart. And that's why appearances can be deceiving. Not that we deal like with these kind of problems in this day and age, but some of you may have like a Facebook or Instagram account or something like that. And we're all supposed to know that that's not real life, but it's still at the same time kind of deceiving, right? My wife is much more of a partaker especially in the Instagram. And sometimes she'll post pictures of like some project I was working on. And I know because, not because I go on Instagram, but because other people will be like, oh, we saw the thing your wife posted. That was great. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, she did that thing. And then sometimes, and I don't, you know, you guys know this about my wife, but she, you know, she dabbles in the culinary arts. And so sometimes she'll make this amazing dish and like she gives it to me and I could tell like she's waiting for my response. And I'm like, yeah, it, it was good. Like it was, it was good. I didn't have a problem with it. And then she'll post on Instagram, you know, like salad with like braised pear and Peruvian endive, non-GMO organic spirit salad or whatever it is. And then I, I see people and, they, and they'll walk up to me and I th they think like I eat like that all the time. And they're like, oh, you know, but your wife, she makes these fabulous meals. And the truth is that sometimes she does. And sometimes we have Little Caesar's pizza. Um, sometimes my wife will ask me, hey, can you make dinner tonight? And I'll usually respond like, sure. What do you want from In-N-Out? Because I make a pretty good burger. It's not always just what you see on Instagram. It's not always just the highlights. But we can see that and it would be easy for us to be deceived. Some of us look at other people, right? And we think, man, if, if my wife looked like that or if my wife would do that, then I would be more happy. Or if my husband would do those kind of things or if my husband would talk like that. We're not, we're not seeing the full picture. What we're seeing is parts. We're seeing the highlights. And appearances can be deceiving. Anytime... And this is Israel's original problem in this story, right? Anytime we're looking for a sinner to solve our situation and not a savior, we're in trouble. Anytime we're looking for a sinner to solve our situation and not a savior, we're in trouble. 
if you're looking at someone else and saying, man, if only that person or this person, and you look at other people's lives and you say, if only my life could be like that. But you don't know the whole story of their life. You don't know everything that's going on with them. I know we look at the story of, of Saul and it's easy for us. Again, the Bible can sometimes be misleading because it's like, well, it seems like Saul was king for a hot minute and then he was out. But in reality, and the Bible tells us, Saul was king for 42 years, um, a good long time, from the time he was 30 to the time he was about 72. And, and some of that was good. And midway through, it starts to go bad. And so God says, I reject you as king. And for that reason, I'm going to anoint someone to be the new king. And Samuel states to Saul the kind of king that God is looking for, right? He says, a man after God's own heart. So today we're in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it starts off in verse 1. And it says, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And in that moment, and in the weeks to come, you will see there has definitely been a change in Saul. He's not the same person. His heart is not in the same place as it was. Because Samuel has told Saul directly, look, you're no longer going to be king. God is going to appoint someone new to be king. And here we see that Samuel believes, and God doesn't argue with him here, that if Saul had a chance, he would definitely stop or try to stop God's sovereign will by intervening with this plan to replace him as king by killing Saul. And so God makes a recommendation to Samuel. He says, the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem's, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Because back then, and this is a period of transition, obviously, in Israel's history, where they were basically being governed by God through the prophets. So when the prophets spoke, they were speaking for God and to the people. And it wasn't always good news, as it was with Saul. When Samuel came and said, look, God has spoken, and this is what is going to pass. There's nothing you can do about it. God has said he rejects you as king, and you're already being replaced. There's no other course. And so when Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, they're like nervous, understandably nervous. What's happening here? Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, 
for I rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he decides he's going to do this sacrifice and he invites people of the town. I'm not sure when again that he's really divulging to people the real reasons he's there, but it's really covert because no one wants to be killed by Saul. And he brings in the house of Jesse and Eliab is his oldest son. And so obviously Samuel's looking with his human eyes and he's making a, a human kind of observation here and he says well clearly like this is the dude right I mean he's the tallest he's the oldest he's the most mature most strong he just he looks like if I was going to pick somebody out of these people in this room to be king this would be the one but for good reason he stops he pauses and he starts to listen to God and ask God well what is it that you think and God says look I understand, but you're looking at all the wrong things. You're looking at his appearance, but I'm looking at something else. And and the reason that Samuel in this moment has to step back is that people can be fooled. Prophets, presidents, pastors, anybody can be fooled. God is never fooled. When I was a, a high school pastor, once a year, we would take these, these trips. You know, kind of like uh, Pastor Jeff does with Rock the Boat. We would go up to Big Bear Lake and we'd have a boat and we'd take him out on the water. And uh, as, as the pastor, I was like, you know, this is, I'm, in, I'm, I'm the authority, right? I have to govern these people. And high schoolers, uh, not the easiest group of people to govern, God bless them. And uh, so I, I had a strategy, obviously, and this was from experience, just knowing myself growing up, that I knew that the real problem were the boys. They were the problem. They were gonna, they were gonna break stuff. They were gonna burn stuff, uh, maybe break themselves. Uh, and and, and in, in my mind, in my opinion, right, the only problem with the girls would be is if they got too close to the boys. So if I could just keep my eyes on the boys, make sure they didn't destroy anything, be great. Everything would go wonderful. So the trip, in my mind, goes seemingly well. We get back into town and, uh, you know, there's like, I had a budget, make sure everything's paid and into the church office comes a bill. And the bill is from the place that we stayed and the bill is for a bed. And I was, and I called the place and I was like, say what? And I think for me, they were like, obviously I was I was in on this, right? I knew I sort of tried to cover it up because what had happened is some of the students had broken a bed in what I could only consider to be some kind of um, amateur WWE night. And then with their lack of construction and woodworking skills, sort of like cobbled it back together so that it looked normal. And then we all left. And the first moment someone tried to sleep on it, um, they were very surprised. The bed was not stable. And so I'm having this conversation. And I was like, oh, look, I, I, I'm sorry that that happened. I don't know what happened. So I decided to bring it up. You know, next Wednesday night, the students. Craziest thing, you know, I got this bill for a broken bed. And, you know, you're looking at the faces, just looking for the guilty one, just looking for those roughhousing boys that did this thing. All of a sudden I look, and there's this group of girls. They're like, all of a sudden, they look like they've been caught. They know that the jig is up. 
and I, and I, for me, I was like, I was just surprised. First of all, I, I don't know what the girls somehow were having some kind of thing on the bed. They tried to explain to me some jumping contest or something like that. Broke the bed. Decided not to tell me about it because they didn't want to get in trouble and try to fix it themselves. And for me, hey, I have to admit, sometimes I can be fooled. Sometimes the outward appearance, what you're looking for, is not as easy to ascertain as the heart. So we start it back up here in verse 8. It says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? And this is like not a cover-up or anything like that, right? Not like they were ashamed of David or anything. It was just like a logistical problem, at least in my mind. There's a party, this important guy comes, and maybe he's looking for a new king. So obviously, if I'm going to bring my sons in front of him, I'm going to bring the oldest. Like if, I, if someone's the most unlikely to be chosen, right, it's going to be the youngest. And it's not like... They didn't trust him. He was very trustworthy, but they had to leave him in charge of taking care of the sheep because, hey, even if there's a party, someone still needs to watch the sheep. And Samuel looks and he goes through all the sons and God's telling him, no, it's not any of these. And so he says, you know, are these all the sons? And Jesse answers him, right? He says, there is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And in this moment, we see that God had found what he was really looking for, and that was someone after his own heart. And in this passage, it doesn't give us a lot of insight into what that is. And so we're left with kind of two questions, even though we're at the end of this passage. Number one, what qualities did David possess that made him a God after, made him a man after God's own heart? And number two, what is the heart of God? In Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says of God, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So as we look at God, what is the heart of God? God is not willing that, that any should perish. He's wanting, he desires to redeem those that are lost. And as Dan talked about last week, God loves, and because of that, he is willing to sacrifice. The, the demonstration of God's love is in his sacrifice. What did God see in David that made him think that this is the kind of person that I want to lead my chosen people? And we get a glimpse, a little glimpse of that into David's resume to fight Goliath the Philistine. 
right? He goes up and first of all, signs up for a job that nobody's interested in. And then he gives his resume to Saul when Saul says, uh, you're a child. You're not ready, qualified in any position to fight this person that no one else in all of Israel will fight. And David says, here, look, here's my resume. When I was a shepherd, because that's David's resume, right? And a bear or a lion came and took one of the sheep. I chased after it and I killed it. Now just think about that for a minute. Try to put yourself in a position where that is your job. Your job is to be the shepherd of many sheep. And one of the reasons this whole story, this illustration often comes up in the Bible is because sheep, like they needed sheep, but not any one of the sheep. If you're just thinking about kind of like from a monetary, like from a business model, like not one of those sheep was worth that much. Like collectively, yes, like the sheep is our livelihood. But I'm just saying, if I was a shepherd, and maybe this means I wouldn't be that great of a shepherd, or maybe this just means that I would have been an average shepherd, and I'm taking care of all these sheep, and all of a sudden out of the blue, a lion shows up and grabs one of the sheep and takes off running, I'm not sure my first instinct is going to be, I'm going to chase that thing down and get that sheep back. I'd probably be of the mindset that, well, we lost a sheep today. Go back, tell dad, right? Dad, you are not going to believe this. I was watching the sheep and out of nowhere, this lion showed up and grabs one of the sheep. Of course, like in today's culture and society, right? Something like happens and our kids are involved. We're always asking like, oh, dad, mom, I was in a car accident. It was crazy. Are you okay? Like, I don't care about, I don't care about the car. I don't care about this stuff. But like, are you okay? And here David is not thinking of himself first. David is willing to put himself in peril and in danger to put the lives of the sheep first. This is his resume. And in part, I think, what God saw in David that makes him a good king. A lot of times we look at leadership or authority, and again, appearances can be deceiving. We can look at it from the outside and say, well, that looks like they're enjoying having that power or they're enjoying that position, or it looks like that would be easy. And let me tell you, it's, it's not easy to be in a position of authority. You're under a, a lot of scrutiny. And for people in that position, every mistake that you make is amplified. And to be the kind of person that in authority doesn't look to just serve their own needs, but is looking to live a sacrificial love is rare in leaders as much as it was then as it is today. You know, what is, what is our response to the story? We read the story and we say, oh, that's great. You know, there was this king, God picked a new king for the Israelites. It was a long time ago. What does that have to do with me here now? Um, and, and a lot of that is really amplified in the situation that we're in. I mean, solitude it exposes the heart. Um, what happens when no one is looking? And for some of us, depending on your situation, you've been in a place where it's like, Okay, maybe you still have a job, but you're, you're working at home. And, and so, not to say that you would do this, but maybe you don't have to put quite the same effort into your job because 
you know, there's not those same restrictions. My kids had to do the distance learning thing at the end of last year and probably will have to at the beginning of this year. And it was like, um, so they're doing the bare minimum that they're required to go on the screen or have these meetings. But it was like, let's be honest. And I understand it's the circumstance. There wasn't quite the same level of learning going on that I assume was going on when they were in school. Um, this solitude really gives us a lot more time to do what we want to do. And so the solitude exposes the heart. When no one else is looking, we have this ability to be like, well, if these are the choices, right, then why don't I just do what I want to do? And not to mention, you put on top of that the, the stress of some of the things that have been going on, the riots that have taken place. And it's like, for a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we just follow the social norms because of the consequences or incentives. Like if we were left up to our own devices, would we be pursuing God's heart? You can imagine, and not that you would have been there in this situation, but like a riot's taking place and the first guy breaks a window and runs out with the TV. Like the other people are, are looking and waiting for the cops, right? To arrest this guy, to show up. Nothing happens. And you just see him walk away with the TV. And you're thinking, well, I need a TV. And if we're not going to get caught, because the whole, whole reason I was not doing these things is because I didn't want to get caught, right? Some of you don't go to work because you really like enjoy your job and you're into it. Some of you go to work because you don't want to be homeless. Some of us just follow the rules because of the incentives or the consequences. Some of you obey the speed limit, not because you're, I want to be this safe, controlled driver, but because you don't want any of that money to go out of your bank account that you'd have to pay for the ticket. Um, there's a reason and a difference between our actions and our heart's desire. And what God is looking for is what is going on in your heart. And in contrast to kind of the kind of leader that God is looking for in the story, one of self-sacrifice, one who puts others before themselves, is what we see a lot of times when, when stressful events happen. And that's self-preservation. When it looks like maybe there won't be enough toilet paper for everybody, or maybe there's not going to be enough hand sanitizer for everybody, or maybe our, our our first instinct, and not all of us, but some of us, even among Christians, is I have to go out and get as much of that as I can. Our, our, our first instinct is not sacrifice, it's self-preservation. And this goes back to the doubt and the hearts of the Israelites that is still in some of us today. That we're not quite sure that God where he's at is, is sovereign and has everything under control to the level that we would be comfortable with. And so sometimes we have to take a little bit of our own initiative. And if that initiative means that other people are secondary, and that's, and that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is for, for every tribe and tongue and nation to know him and to come to him. The heart of God is that no one would perish, that no one would have to suffer because other people put themselves first. 
And as us as Christians who desire to have a heart after God, to be worthy of, of being in a place where we influence other people is not a thing where we're thinking, well, look at what I have, this status or this position. It's basically coming to recognition of, am I willing to put others before myself? The example of this is given to us in John chapter 15, verse 13, where it says, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for another. In the person of Jesus, we have the picture of what it is like to have a heart like God's, to put others first. I think um, we really have opportunity here for some of you who have more free time and time to yourself there is really time for inflection for us to come before God and, and lay down our idols and say, God, what I, I really desire is to have in my heart the things that you have in your heart. To not just look at people and the outside, but really put people first and myself second. As Dan was saying last week, because I trust and I have faith I am confident in you, Lord, that you are my rock and you are my foundation. And God will not fail you. You can, you can take those risks. You can, you can feel free to love because God has loved you and redeemed you. And that's the kind of leadership that God is looking for. I think, um, and some people, this, this happened right way back in the day that uh, Jeff Sessions uh, decided to quote Romans 13 that basically is this thing saying, uh, you know, everyone has to basically listen to those in authority because God has put us in power. Um, and that would be the misinterpretation of that scripture. In reality, what the scripture says is let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. For those of us who find ourselves in a position of authority and now that we have a lull or a time where we can kind of be more introspective, let me tell you, it's a lot easier for you to deal with some stuff that's going on in your heart now than wait until you're in a position of authority and responsibility. And God dealing with you then makes a much bigger mess than really any of us desire. Come before God now, when you have the time, before you go back to work, before things get crazy again, to say, God, I want you to look into my heart. See if there's anything offensive in me. Purify me, God. Refine me by your fire. Because when we live a life like God, we show the world the light and the love of Jesus. And when we don't, when we turn to selfishness, living in fear, and seeing other people as our enemies and not as beloved children of God. We create an uglier world. We do the church a disservice. And we dishonor the name that we claim to uphold. That is the name of Jesus. The world, now more than ever, or maybe just always, just as much, needs Jesus.
They need to see love. They need to see a sacrificial love that puts others above themselves, that considers people worthy and valuable regardless of the color of their skin or where they come from or their position in life that would look to not oppress those who are weak at the time, but to uplift, to give of some of their own strength to redeem. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a man and came to earth and suffered the brunt, the punishment, the penalty of our sin so that we can be redeemed. And if we're to live like he is calling us to do, if we're to be like God, if we're to be like David in this passage, it's to have a heart that puts others above ourselves. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to look at this and and take some time, maybe have a unique opportunity to be able to come before you and say, God, you know, before all this happened, I, I was not putting you first. I was not thinking of others. I was just trying to satisfy and gratify myself. And, and I want to come out of this on the other side different. I want to come out of this changed because of the opportunity that I have to come into your presence and to be with you and lay some things down at your feet. God, I need your Holy Spirit to fill me to give me the kind of love and compassion and self-sacrifice that you are calling us to do as we look to love a broken and hurting world, a world in the dark, and Lord, that you have called the church to be a light to. Father, purify me. Come into my heart and take away anything that is not of you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.